0: What's the secret to a happy life? For The Answer, join us in Madrid from Thursday the 27th to Saturday the 29th of June for Monocle's fifth annual Quality of Life conference. Head to conference.monocle.com for all the details and to buy your ticket. Monocle, keeping an eye and an ear on the world.
1: You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 13th of May 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Juliette Foster and on today's show, two oil tankers belonging to Saudi Arabia are attacked while four vessels from the United Arab Emirates are sabotaged amid rising tension in the Gulf. A prominent Afghan female journalist is gunned down in Kabul as police hunt for Mina Mangal's killer. The government is under renewed pressure to do more to protect women journalists. My guests, Ivor Geber and Sebastian Borger, will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including... As Britain divers about leaving the European Union, a new report claims that Brexit uncertainty is causing British companies to relocate to Germany. All that, plus Japan signs a deal to recycle more of its plastic waste at home instead of exporting it to China and other developing countries to deal with. That's all to come here on Midori House with me, Juliette Foster. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Ivor Gaber, who's Professor of Political Journalism at the University of Sussex, and Sebastian Borger, who's the London correspondent for The Tagesspiegel. So welcome both of you to the programme. And tension is rising in the Gulf after Saudi Arabia claimed that two of its oil tankers were attacked over the weekend. It happened after the United Arab Emirates reported that four of its commercial vessels had also been sabotaged. Both incidents occurred off the coast of Fujairah, one of the seven emirates that make up the UAE. And they've heightened fears that shipping lanes in the Gulf, crucial to the global oil supply, could become flashpoints between the United States, its Arab allies, and Iran. So, Ivor, how serious a development is this, given that America has already deployed an aircraft carrier to the region? Should we now be really worried?
0: I think it is serious. Anything that happens in the Middle East is serious anyway, both for strategic reasons, reasons of the oil price, and because it is a very High tensile area, but there are a number of other reasons to worry. Um, first, as you make reference, there's the Trump factor. There is an um, American carrier heading in that direction, and Mr. Trump has been known to shoot from the hip metaphorically, and let's not hope it's literally. But secondly, we're dealing with Iran feeling greatly under pressure because of the issues about the Iran nuclear deal. And then it's against the background of the the Gulf crisis, Saudi and Qatar, not to mention Yemen. So mm-hmm. yeah, worry is the right word.
1: Yeah, and interestingly enough, you mentioned Iran there. Now the Saudis, uh, Sebastian, haven't said who they blame for this act of sabotage, but it is fair to say that as far as Riyadh's concerned, this has the fingerprints of Tehran all
2: over it. Indeed. Um, Well, that's what we have to assume. Also, I mean, we we haven't been told details of what the Mm. the acts of sabotage actually amounted to. Um, You know, were there boats throwing uh, hand grenades or or torpedoes? What is it? Um, Very odd, very odd. But absolutely right. I mean, um, Ivor and I just coming into the studio talked about um rational, rationality in, in in international politics and particularly in that region and we and we both worried i think about the the, the question as to how rational people behave in mm. in a situation where increasingly tensions are ratcheting up i mean um i thought jeremy hunt the uk foreign secretary was quite right in saying in warning um, you know that that a conflict can can happen by accident yes. um in a in a situation like that where where you feel like that there are a lot of people who Want to ratchet it up rather than calm it down. Israel, I mean Netanyahu, just has his his uh, election victory under his belt. Um, uh, may therefore feel freer to 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 act than, than before. Uh, Trump is uh, getting uh, antsy about the uh, pre-election uh, period in the U.S. Um, Iran obviously has severe economic problems since since uh, Trump uh, gave up the accord. So so yeah, I mean. Mm. There's
0: another and
2: factor, I'm sorry, that just
0: picking up. Um, Iran came out very quickly condemning it and distancing itself from it, and that's not its normal style, it's involved. But um, there is, uh, Sebastian was saying, we don't know how it There is a re- report that um, a similar damage was done by Houthi rebels um, to shipping mm. in the port, and it is not inconceivable because they have attacked Saudi shipping in the past. Now, if it is Houthi rebels, and my guess actually based on being five thousand miles away and having no inside knowledge. My guess it is them. Without Iran's approval, we have another factor that Iran's clients aren't doing mm. what cl- Iran would so it just adds to the uncertainty. So
1: that denotes the a loss of control actually if you've got if you've got a client that is acting in a fashion that can be construed as, as wayward.
2: Well, we don't know whether that's a loss of control yeah. or, or whether it, in, in, <laughs> in, in fact, is, <laughs> is quite the opposite. <laughs> I mean, Iran's seriously. Inter- is it in Iran's interest? Well, when you look at Iran's power politics over the last 15, 20 years, I have to say, regardless of how you judge the regime there, I think they've played the, 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 the few cards they have very astutely.
1: Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing about this oil is that. Um, it, some of it was destined for the United States. Now, from Donald's Trump, Donald Trump's perspective, either, could could he turn around and cite that? As an example of America's interests being directly threatened, because after all, this oil was destined to go to the well, states, and so I mean, the the journey has been interrupted.
0: Well, as you know, well as you know, under the UN security rules, you can attack a state if your interests are threatened, and we use that rather threadbare excuse when we claim that Saddam Hussein was about to attack our ba- our sovereign base in Cyprus. Um, so you can claim anything and sort of get away with it, and. I don't think that Trump would be too bothered about the niceties. Yeah, in theory, he could. Of course, it will make little difference to the American economy. It must Saudi oil. I don't know what percentage it constitutes, but I'm, it's certainly not going to cause queues at the gas stations in America. Right. But if he wants to do it, yeah, he, he would.
1: But Sebastian, Iran has also warned that if it can't ship its oil through the Straits of Hormuz, other countries won't be allowed to use that that area either. So, realistically. What steps could it take to enforce its word? And again, that's going to ratchet up tension, isn't it?
2: Yes, yes, indeed. I mean, uh, mine, mine them, mine the Straits of Hormuz, which would amount to an act of war um again have funny accidents in the Strait of Hormuz which um you know you try to describe away but in fact uh, act as a as a blockade um i i i wouldn't i mean it's always the same the same question isn't it you want to make someone else do what you think is right in other words mr trump wants well, regime change isn't that what he wants in the end,
1: without admitting it. <laughs> um,
2: and and and, and uh, how far do you want to go? Well, uh, I, I I would suggest that the the approach uh, uh, that the European Union and uh, and the, the, their three biggest countries plus uh, the, the Russians and the, uh, and the US under Obama took was the right one. I mm-hmm. can't see any other way.
1: I mean, the, the worry, of course, is that if these attacks are stepped up, whoever's behind them, then it would have the potential to threaten the oil supplies. That in turn could harm the global economy. Ooh. But at a time when America itself is locked in a trade war, With China. So could that in itself perhaps be some sort of a deterrent on the Americans? Because even though the Americans have said, oh, well, you know, we're not hurting at the moment. If this thing prolongs, it could start to bite and then having a conflict in in the Gulf. Again, that adds to the pressure. So could that in itself, the possibility, be a restraint on Mr. Trump?
0: Ah, it was all sounding very good. and It won't be a restraint on Mr. Trump. You just explained a very logical, rational explanation as to why America (laughs) backed down. But then you said the word Mr. Trump, so it sort of obviates it. Um, Because if he really concerned about the global economy, he wouldn't have launched. It was very interesting. Last night... His economic secretary said the only people being damaged by the China trade sanctions are American businesses yeah, and American consumers. Contradicting his boss. Uh, Who had said, no, no, we're getting we're, we're getting billions. So, you know, we're, we're not dealing, literally not dealing with rationality here. I just wanted to make one observation that sort of sent a slight chill up my spine, something that Sebastian said he talked about, or you both talked about, closing the Straits of Hormuz. The last time the Straits of Hormuz were closed was 1967, which Israel used as the... Pretext or the justifiable pretext for launching the Six Day War, the closing the Straits of Hormuz, apart from being war, is a stranglehold on the world economy. Mm. A third of all world shipping goes through there, and so it's a really serious. Act. And it's not a difficult thing to do. You only need a couple of, well, say, a couple of gunboats to intercept oil tankers. Aren't going to break yeah. that embargo, so it, it's a relatively simple thing to do. But it's a horrendous thing because the, the the Straits are shared, if you like. Iran's on one side, United Arab Emirates on the other it's a very high risk strategy so i hope they don't do it
1: okay I mean, look let's let's close this down this this subject down with one last question to you sebastian because look you do have to ask yourself why this fixation with the iranians because do, does i mean does donald trump feel under pressure to score some kind of a foreign policy success after the failure of venezuela and the failure on his part to actually Get the North Koreans to abandon their nuclear weapons. Is Iran seen as the easiest nut to crack in that sense? Well, if
2: if they see it as the easiest nut to crack in Washington,
1: that's not if, a flagrant way to put it. But you know what I mean.
2: <laughs> they've got another thing coming, haven't they? And uh, to be honest, I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily say Venezuela is a failure yet. We. I, I don't think we've seen the end of that. Mm. Whereas, I mean, we've seen Iran um, hanging around this this regime hanging around for forty years. Now and I, I, I don't see. I don't see. But, it, but it. is that his
1: obsession? That you know, the that we that the, the well the 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 American perspective that um, the the Iranians with the with the the change, the abandonment of of the um, the, the 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 royal family, the, the the replacement with the theocracy that they the Americans felt humiliated. It's never been forgotten, and previous presidents failed to, to crack that one. Trump, the obsession. I've got to be the one to do it. I will succeed where everybody else has failed.
2: It's well possible. All I'm, I'm, I suppose I'm arguing to, to, and saying, well, um, you know, we were actually making inroads in, in changing the regime's attitude rather than changing the regime uh, in, 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 in opening up the, their economy in, in giving Iranians hope, uh, which in fact uh, led to c- quite serious uh, demonstrations and, and so, so. <laughs> It's, it seems to me the wrong way to go about it. That's that's all I can mm, say. Uncertainty prevails. Let's move on then to
1: Afghanistan, where a prominent female journalist has been gunned down on the streets of Kabul. Mina Mangal, who was also a staunch supporter of women's rights, had recently been appointed as a cultural commissioner of the Afghan Parliament. One of her colleagues, the MP Shagufa Nurzai, said her death was part of a pattern of women targeted in Kabul streets. As the hunt for the killer is underway, women's rights activists and Mangal's former colleagues are calling on the authority to do more to protect female journalists. Either we know that journalism can be a dangerous job in some parts of
0: the world, but the fact that it's even more dangerous
1: if you're a woman, that's chilling.
0: Well, uh, it's chilling and it's apposite because we've just had World Press Freedom Day where the theme of it was attacks on women journalists. We've had here in the UK in Northern Ireland, a woman journalist killed, murdered. Um, there's this case. There's the not the percentage, and I could bore you with the st- figures because I I, I I work at UNESCO on this, or I represent UK at UNESCO on this. The actual numbers are not huge because the vast majority of people in conflict areas are men, but there does seem to be a trend of targeting women, um, either in terms of. Um, assassinations, but also in terms of sexual harassment. Yeah. Um, we remember uh, Tahir Square in the Arab Spring where women's journalists yes, see, were, yes. were harassed. Absolutely. So I think this is particularly chilling. But why this one was, she was aware of it. She had th- threats. Mm. Yes. She had threats. Mm. She was high profile. She was obviously courageous because she didn't hide. But why wasn't she better protected?
1: Yeah and 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 that and that's the point that certainly um other activists have been asking but you do have to broach the question Sebastian whether the authorities are really up to the job of protecting female journalists and also women who are very prominent in Afghan
2: life. Well, but, but can I just start with saying, of course, the to, to be fair, I mean, this this um, Mina Mangal was gunned down with nine shots. Mm. Um, our our case here in Northern Ireland is slightly different, of course, because it was it was a, a mark shot at the police mm. line. This was Lira she, McKee Lira McKee who was who, who, you know, it's a it's a terrible death, no doubt about it. But she was. Wasn't actually targeted. Now, now, in, as far as Afghanistan is concerned, I I think all the all the um, obituaries or the comments by colleagues um, attack the Afghan government and. Rightly so, but to, you know, she was working for uh, certain TV stations. I would have thought it would have been their, yes, their
1: responsibility. responsibility
2: first and foremost. Mm. Just like the uh, the BBC gave uh, their their political editor Laura Kunzberg a, 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 an escort when she was, th- you know, on a, on a very different level, but mm. threatened uh, by 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 Labour activists around a, a party conference. So so. Um, you know, yes, Afghan government by all means, but but, uh, but the private companies who after all presumably make some money with journalism as well, uh, should, should at least share the responsibility, I would have thought.
1: But I, I guess the worry has to be either that Mina Mangal and other women in her situation, they are breaking ground in a very symbolic way because Afghanistan is a hugely conservative society or country and um, women's roles are very defined. So these women are challenging that. And I guess the worry is that in light of what has happened to her and indeed other women who have suffered a similar fate, it could deter
0: other women from following in their footsteps that's a a, that is a general interfere although interestingly in the last couple of years in afghanistan there's been a real i won't say renaissance of women's organizations but women are self-organizing and in those areas controlled by the government of course in those areas controlled by the taliban it's a different story but i've been in contact with various ngos non-government organizations in afghanistan and i've been struck by how many are women led so this is a serious blow um and maybe that's not Unconnected, that they feel that the women are becoming too prominent and have to be slapped down.
1: Right, or maybe, as you said, you've got womens led organisations that perhaps the women themselves feel: look, we can't trust anybody else to take charge of our safety; we have to do it ourselves.
0: I th- would that would I would speculate, um, but it is difficult. I mean, there's no question. This is, g- Afghanistan is, and Kabul are dangerous areas. Um, clearly, this woman was targeted, but anybody. There has to be aware um, that personal safety is a huge problem. Yeah. And just to make one other observation, the UNESCO would include the Irish death as a journalist because the definition is, was she there because she was a journalist? And she was, she was reporting it, mm. but it was, as you say, um, not intended.
1: Mm. I mean, the other point as well, Sebastian, is whether, I mean, look, we're talking about what happened to this woman amongst ourselves and also sharing that, of course, with our listeners, but. Do you feel that the world is, is more likely to focus on the dangers faced by female journalists if the victim is somebody who is very high profile? And I'm thinking specifically of the American journalist Mary Colvin. Now, she was killed in Syria, and in fact, you know, the book was written about her, and of course, a film was written about her. Mm. But, you know, an, an Afghan journalist who's, who's faced this terrible danger and was actually warned of the threats but, but worked in defiance of them, it's not likely to have the same sort of impact, is it?
2: Well, we shall see, I suppose. But I presume your scepticism is right. I mean, Mary Colvin, to give her credit, of course, had had reported from war zones around mm. the world for decades, and therefore was fairly prominent amongst her uh, peer group as well, which I think matters as well because they they then in turn, of course, spread the the, the outrage and the sadness about about her death. Also, she was killed fairly early on in the Syria conflict, when the eyes of the world were on that conflict very much. Who these days is still looking at Afghanistan? Let's be, mm. let's be honest. I mean, that's what eighteen years now since since nine eleven, almost eighteen years, um, and and since the invasion of Afghanistan by Western uh, by the Western alliance. So it's uh, it's it's become sort of normal, very very mm. sadly. Very sadly, yeah. but it, that's the way it is.
1: And the final point to you, Ivor. Look, um, the, the women of Afghanistan, they're asking for protection from the authorities, etc. But you do have to ask yourself, how sincere can a police investigation be, given that you, there are problems of corruption in Afghanistan? It runs rife through society. And again, how much of a priority is her death given the other things which are happening in the country.
0: You put your finger on an important point because one of the problems the UN and UNESCO faces in monitoring um, journalist safety is what's called impunity. Governments or not necessarily central government, but government authorities, police courts, not doing a great deal, if anything, to pursue those who undertook the murders. Now... To some extent, sympathy is the wrong word, but Afghanistan, the government of Afghanistan, its writ does not run across whole Afghanistan. In fact, some estimates only a third. But nonetheless, it has not got the best international record of pursuing and reporting what it was doing and so you're right obviously the killings is the major problem but the impunity makes the killings possible. Mm.
1: Okay then you're listening here to Midori House with me Juliet Foster and my guests Ivor Geber and Sebastian Borger and coming up next as Britain tries to organise its departure from the European Union a new report claims that Brexit uncertainty is causing British companies to relocate to Germany.
2: Our very own Monocle Library is growing into a robust collection of well-turned-out titles. For an in-depth look into our core theme of quality of life, why not delve into our first-ever book, The Monocle Guide to Better Living? For any would-be business leaders, entrepreneurs, or even established companies in search of fresh ideas, there's The Monocle Guide to Good Business. In How to Make a Nation, A Monocle Guide, we look at the small and the big things that can help make our nations work better. And in the Monocle Guide to Drinking and Dining, we bypass the foam and the fuss to uncover the makings of a truly great meal. Monocle's handsome books are published by our friends at Gestalten in Berlin and offer a world of new experiences between the covers. So spruce up your shelves today and buy some of our titles online at monocle.com
0: or from any good bookstore.
1: Still with me are Iva Gaber and Sebastian Borger. Now, a new report claims that Brexit uncertainty is causing more British companies to relocate to Germany. Research by Germany Trade and Investment found that in 2018, more foreign companies than ever had opened up businesses in the Bundesrepublik, while in 2016, the number of UK firms moving to the country had risen by 34%. Now, Britain was supposed to have left the EU back in March. That the deadline has been put back to the end of October unless Prime Minister Theresa May can get her withdrawal agreement through Parliament before that date. I think, mean, look, are either of you surprised by these findings? Don't laugh, it's very cruel. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'll repeat that question in my most sober voice. Gentlemen, are either of you surprised by those findings? That's sober enough for you, isn't it? <laughs>
0: I would be surprised if they weren't there. I mean, obviously, if you're a British company with your head vaguely screwed on, and you see what's coming, you think, "My goodness me, I, I know. We need, we need an investment somewhere else. We need a headquarters somewhere else." And. You know, Germany seems a pretty good bet, wouldn't you say, Sebastian? Well, of course I would. Wouldn't
2: I? <laughs> You're not really biased, are wouldn't, you? <laughs> uh, not at all. Not, not at all. Look, I mean, this is first of all, of course, this is the uh, this is the um, uh, economic development agency of the of the economics ministry. So they would blow their own trumpets, wouldn't they? I, I thought it, it was very interesting to look at the statistic and see um, the, the the company where most come uh, sorry the country where most companies were coming from is the US mm. now we talk all about the the, the <laughs> trade war the, the trade war that uh, mr trump is trying to initiate but th- there we go um the us companies are clearly still interested in in investing abroad second place switzerland third place china which has a a, 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 a quite a bad decrease mm. interestingly mm. because i think there is as in this country there is also in germany quite a bit of skepticism these days about the the way uh, chinese companies invest in in our countries and then britain but and and which tells me also i mean let let's let's look at the uh, the slight sliver of uh, of light along the dark brexit horizon <laughs> which is our countries are still very close in lo- in so many ways, um, and 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 share a lot of values and and the, the way we we try to make money and all of that, and and, and I think that that tells us a lot about uh, how how close the UK and. And Germany and, and a, a whole lot of other countries in in the EU, European Union will stay, regardless of what will happen. Of course, today we've heard that the prime minister is bringing back uh, votes into parliament. We can't quite see whether that'll make any difference, but but there we go but but for, from a german perspective of course very important to get some uh, inward investment and, and be, because most of the most of the fi- financial uh, service industry has gone either to dublin mm. paris or amsterdam with frankfurt a distant fourth which is surprising isn't it not because we thought frankfurt was our big rival did, 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 did you not? That's right, exactly. Well, either either people don't like Frankfurt, which I can never quite understand because I quite like it. Um, but of course, compare it to Dublin, which where people at least speak English, and <laughs> uh, compare it to Paris, which is a world-class city. Uh, compare it to Amsterdam, which is pretty, beautiful. Uh, pretty uh, beautiful and 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 cosmopolitan. Maybe Frankfurt is is fourth rank. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, what I'd like to put to both of you, just to close this subject, is look, um, it's possible. <laughs> I going to be very optimistic that maybe Britain will leave the EU before the end of October. But I mean, realistically, do do you think that um, it it will get dragged on to Halloween,
0: (laughs) Brexit? I've been sitting in this studio and studios like it for the past (laughs) three years. And virtually the truthful answer to every question I've ever been asked is I don't know. (laughs) But I will attempt it because that's not We are in a we're in a different we're in a different universe where no predictions have stood up. So, do I think Britain will leave the EU by October 31st? I genuinely don't know. (laughs) My guess, and we can't do more than guess, is that it won't. Will it have definitively either revoked Article 50, and that means stopped the process and joined it, or leave with no deal? No. I think there will be yet another extension. Eventually, in the year 2080, (laughs) the EU... I think the UK will agree it's a tie, and just don't know. Right, yeah. so so 2080 probably,
1: Sebastian. <laughs>
2: I, I, I'm I'm in that sense less optimistic than Ivor. I'm afraid. 2050. I think, I think Britain will have to go eventually, really? and it, it'll be either this or next year.
1: Right. Really? Okay then. Well, yeah, so maybe if we lose the Eurovision Song Contest as well, that'll be a portent of things to we come. lose the Eurovision Song <laughs> Contest. Oh, <laughs> well, we might win it this year. Finally, finally, Japan is among 180 countries to sign a legally binding framework curbing plastic waste, which, according to the United Nations, is a major threat to marine life. Now, previously, Japan exported part of its plastic waste to China and other developing countries, but under the deal it will have to step up its efforts to recycle more of the waste inside the country itself. And, Sebastian, it is quite shocking that Japan was dumping waste on other countries. Basically, here's our rubbish and you take care of it.
2: Well, we all did it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, excuse <laughs> me, I don't do it. <laughs> Siri, no, yes, yeah, you, yeah. yes. Yeah. We all do. We a, all do. Being we all a do. British
2: citizen, you're yeah, doing it. Yeah. But being a German citizen, I'm doing it. Um, <laughs> and, and in fact, I think it was China uh, two or three years ago uh, which quite... Uh, commendably i thought uh, said uh, that's yeah. the end of it by yeah. the end of this year you'll have to find a different ways of getting of of dealing with your rubbish
0: I, uh, I think japan's actually taken a move i'm not sure how many other countries have have done that have made it legally binding. Yeah. I mean, we all make fi- fine aspirations about
2: it, but I think J- Japan deserves credit for making it legally sure. binding. Well, I mean, they've they've just they they are of course only one of what 180 states, which have signed, a, signed a legally binding frame a legally binding framework. Now to, you can always you can always argue you, you being the UN expert. <laughs> you can always <laughs> argue that that it doesn't amount to much. It's not
0: legally binding until it, the parliament. under domestic law. Yes, okay. Sure. Exactly. No,
2: I agree. Sorry. I agree, and and no, that is kidding. and that is that is a that is a worry. But uh, I mean, I'm not entirely sure how far the legal process in Japan has already gone through the Diet. I mean, you, you know, mm. so, so.
1: But I mean, interestingly enough, America hasn't signed up to this along with quite a few other countries yeah not a surprise i guess but doesn't that weaken its effectiveness if the world's biggest economy pulls
2: back well of course but we remember that the americans haven't signed a lot of international treaties because of fundamental problems with their constitutional situation we can go into a long spiel about whether that's justified or not but that's just the way it is its doesn't necessarily mean that they don't stick to at least some of the international agreements some some they do some mm-hmm. they don't but to be fair i mean a, a lot of other countries uh, stick to them yeah sort of yeah. you know um fluid
0: interpretation
2: <laughs> unfortunately that's the way it is
0: yeah i mean the uh, in the past for example under obama um, america being, had to pull out of UNESCO not that Baum particularly wanted to but because UNESCO recognised Palestine there was a Senate resolution that said we will not be a member of any organisation so you're right that there is a constitutional issue but um, with this particular particular convention um, it was a political decision not to sign it mm. by the Trump re- regime not a constitutional so they can't get off the hook that way.
1: Okay then well that brings us to the end of today's show. Ivor Gaber and Sebastian Borger thank you both for joining us here at Med- Dory House. Well, today's show was produced by Carlotta Rebello. It was researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Helena Jere. Our studio manager was Kenya Scarlett. More music next, and at 1900 hours it is the Monica Culture Show with Robert Bound, and we'll have more of the day's main stories on the Monaco Daily at 2200. The House is back at the same time tomorrow. That is 1800 London time. I'm Juliet Foster. Goodbye. <music>